Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about drainage research. We have five members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? I'm Brad Carlson, and uh, I do mostly uh, uh, outreach uh, related to water quality, work a lot with the uh, uh, research products that the uh, other four individuals that are on the the uh, podcast today uh, do, and so I'm here to just kind of help interact with these folks and and talk a little bit about uh, uh, kind of uh, some of the key takeaway points as far as uh, uh, not just what they found, but how we're probably going to apply those uh, out out in the community. I'm Fabian Fernandez, uh, I'm the uh, Soil, Water, and Climate Department in St. Paul. And I work uh, primarily on nitrogen management in corn cropping systems, uh, looking both at the agronomic responses as well as the impact that uh, fertilizers have on the environment. Uh, water quality being one of the major ones, but I also look at um, other environmental impacts related to air quality with uh, nitrous oxide and ammonia emissions. And I'm Dr. Lindsay Pease, and I am the Nutrient and Water Management Specialist, um, and I'm stationed out at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. Um, a lot of my work has been in the past, and in this current position is with uh, tile drain fields in heavy clay soils, uh, lake lake plain clay soils, um, and I look at water quality issues um, along with just kind of general water nutrient management issues in drained fields. I'm Dr. Jeff Strzok. I'm at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center near Lamberton, Minnesota. Um, most of the work that I've been doing over the last number of years is really related to drainage water management. So we're looking at structural and non-structural types of practices to help mitigate some of those uh, off-site uh, impacts from ag production. Um, we have a kind of a philosophy that we are really wanting to make sure that uh, when we're working with uh, these practices that we're keeping in the forefront of our mind that we're trying to help the producers be productive, profitable, but also environmentally conscious of what's going on. So um, I'm glad to be part of the group. Hi, this is Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca. My uh, research focus has usually been nitrogen management, but all of nutrient management. And with that nitrogen management component certainly comes our long history here at Waseca looking at, at uh, drainage research and nitrogen losses through tile drainage systems, both here in Waseca. And we've also worked and collaborated with the facility at Lamberton. And we've also done work uh, with water quality and nitrogen management in Southeast Minnesota. Great, uh, starting off, can each of you kind of tell us a little bit about the specific drainage related research projects you're working on and what you learned in 2020? So uh, we've been working on a project that's been going on since uh, to the fall of 2016, we set it up and the 2020 year was the final year of this phase. And it looked at a corn soybean rotation with and without cover crops and two different species of cover crops, one that terminates in the fall with cold temperatures and then cereal rye that would carry through to the next spring. We're looking at the interaction between cover crops and this corn soybean rotation and nitrogen fertilizer rate and the implications and losses of nitrate in the, in the tile drainage and the effects on crop production. 
So this fourth year, we had the field in soybeans. We did not see any treatment effects, either from past end rates to corn or cover crop treatments on our soybean yields. Our soybean yields were excellent this year in the mid 70 bushel range. Our nitrate concentrations were extraordinarily low, which continues like the fourth year of the study where we've kept nitrate concentrations in our tile drainage below 10 part per million all four years of the study. This year, they were below four part per million. And with many of them in that two to three part per million for most of the treatments through most of the year. Um, that's kind of an overview of what we did this year and where we're going next year is still a little bit to be determined, but we've got some ideas of trying to incorporate uh, cover crops into a, a corn silage system. So in some of the things that I am doing, I have uh, basically two major projects right now looking at water quality or, or uh, drainage. And, and one of them is specifically looking at water quality. Um, one in South Central Minnesota, looking at uh, the effect of um, drainage in the crops uh, and the effect that uh, that might have, well, both in the crop and the response to nitrogen. Uh, in that uh, specific site, we are not actually looking at water quality directly. We look at it indirectly through residual soil nitrogen, but we have um, treatments that consist of drain and undrained conditions. This is a poorly drained site. And so we are looking at what happens when you have tile drainage versus when you have no tile drainage and you should have some tile drainage in, 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 uh, in place to help with the crop production. Um, and uh, 2020 was um, an interesting year. We didn't have as many treatments this last year. We are kind of facing this project into a new uh, project starting hopefully uh, this year or maybe the next year. But uh, um, over the last four years, uh, we have been looking at um, split applications of nitrogen and trying to figure out where the economic optimum lies when you have these drain versus undrained conditions. We also have different tillage treatments in, in that uh, study where we have no-till, conventional tillage, and a strip tillage. And again, trying to figure out under these different tillage conditions, where the economic optimum may be when you are doing a pre-plant application versus a split application. The other study that um, we are doing, we started this in 2014, is in Lamberton, looking at a continuous corn system where we have pre-plant and split application comparisons with urea or ESN, uh, polymer coated urea. And uh, this was the last year of that study. Uh, for these particular treatments, we have plans for new a new study starting in 2021. Um, and what we saw was actually very similar to what we have seen in the past in terms of the treatment response where ESN actually performs very well in uh, as a pre-plant application to reduce nitrate leaching and also improve yield. So kind of a win-win situation um for for farmers and for the environment and uh, the split applications do very well as well um just as good as the pre-plant esn application that, that's kind of a, an interesting thing that we've noticed uh, we normally tend to think that split applications may improve or reduce the amount of nitrate leaching that we see and and that was not really the case uh, 
in 2020 or in the previous years, we've done these studies since 2014. So kind of a, an interesting um, discovery that we are seeing and in a pretty consistent basis in this study. So those are kind of the two major um, projects that I have looking at uh, drainage and, and water quality. And um, so for my work, uh, we had a couple of projects that we started last year um, and I'm still in the, the phase where I'm still ramping up a lot of projects so I don't have a lot of data just yet uh, but the projects we are working on is of course uh, looking at nutrient movement through our recently drained plots. Um, if you've heard me talk at all before or if you haven't and you've looked up anything I've done <laughs> or written about in the past uh, year or so, you will know um, that one of the big projects I took on in 2019 was installing new subsurface a new subsurface drainage system at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center. And so we spent all of 2020 monitoring that, taking soil samples, um, gas samples, so, so air quality samples and water quality samples. And um, yeah, and so we've been working this winter to finish analyzing that data and just finished running all the water quality samples last week. So don't have any uh, real, real data for you guys yet, but, um, but yeah, that's a big project that's just starting and um, looking at how those transformations are happening on something that installation has just happened on is, um, is really exciting. Um, the other thing in Northwest Minnesota is that we don't have a lot of information about what uh, nutrient losses uh, we're seeing off on different farms and in different scenarios. So that's also what I've been working on too, is just establishing some background on uh, from different sites on what kind of concentrations of nitrogen and phosphorus are coming out of the tile drainage systems in uh, or just around the area. Um, a couple really cool projects that we have starting in 2021. Um, the first one being a big collaborative effort. Um, actually, both are big collaborative efforts, but the first one is partnering with some researchers in Canada and Minnesota, and we are going to be looking at um, phosphorus losses in tile drainage systems uh, between Minnesota and Manitoba and in North Dakota and um, look at that on a north-south gradient which is going to be really awesome. Um, yeah working with David Lobb from University of Manitoba, um, a couple of folks from um, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, Stephen Crittenden and Henry Wilson, and um, Mary McRae at University of Waterloo. So just want to give them a quick shout out because uh, you know we don't get to talk about Canadian our Canadian partners too often. <laughs> Um, and the last uh, project that is going to be starting up is we're going to be trying to install a bioreactor in northwest Minnesota and trying to make that work. And um, it's going to be at the end of a lift station. So the water will be pumped out and pumped into a bioreactor. And um, we're going to just try to figure out how to make that work. So down here in the, the southwestern part of the, the state, um, I've got a couple of main projects related to, to drainage that uh, that we've been working on for a number of years. Um, the first one is what we call our integrated project, and I've spent the last few years uh, at you know public meetings uh, talking about it, where we're looking at uh, the individual and the cumulative uh, practice uh, benefits of of four different practices. So. We've got an area where we're looking at uh, cover cropping uh, in, a, in a field area. And um, in that particular area, we're been, we've been looking at uh, winter camelina. 
uh, interseeded into corn and soybeans. Um, we're also looking at uh, our modular bioreactor systems. Um, in this particular case, we're looking at uh, corn cobs, wood chips, and then a supplemental carbon source. We find that uh, in our bioreactors, we tend to be carbon limiting, uh, even though we have corn cobs and wood chips in there. Um, so uh, we've added some uh, additional small amounts of carbon to try to um, stimulate the denitrification process and the nitrogen removal uh, within those bioreactor systems. Um, on top of that, we've also actually added a heat treatment to our bioreactor systems. Um, we know that uh, here in the upper Midwest and particularly here in Minnesota, where uh, we can have some rather cold temperatures in the spring once our, our drainage systems start to flow in you know, mid to late March, April, May, uh, the air temperatures can be cool, the water temperatures are cool. And so basically in our, in our bioreactors, we're, we're trying to create in a couple of the, the treatments, um, essentially kind of a, a, a microorganism, uh, bi a little bioreactor hot tub, if you will. So these little organisms can have a, a, a really conducive warmer environment to actually uh, work on denitrifying the nitrogen that's in the drainage water. Um, the third uh, component of that integrated system is our constructed wetland sites. Um, we actually have three different styles of constructed wetlands. We have a, what we call our surface flow style uh, wetlands. We have a, a horizontal flow style wetland and we have a vertical flow style wetland. Um, and so we're actually doing some uh, statistical comparisons between one of those pairs that actually has water that's just allowed to freely drain out of the system. And then in the other uh, of the two pair, um, we actually have where we're putting in a, a little bit of a check dam or a, a weir in there to try to hold a little bit more water back in the system to create a little bit more residence time. We know that the longer we can keep water in these systems, the, the cleaner that we can uh, make it. Um, so we've been working on those with our constructed wetland sites. And then in our, our drainage ditch site, um, we're basically comparing, a, again, a, a treatment and a control where the, the control is just a, a drainage ditch here at the site that's just normally allowed to behave as a drainage ditch would. Uh, and in our other, we have a, what we're calling a low grade weir, um, which is a, basically a 12 inch little check dam. Um, so we're not trying to back up feet of water in the ditch, but we're trying to have a very small amount of water that we're retaining, uh, again, to increase the residence time of that water uh, in the ditch so that there's time for interaction with the plants and the sediments that are there uh, and, uh, and the biology. Um, one really cool set of aspects of, in particular, the bioreactor work and the ditch work uh, is that we're working with a MinDrive project on these where we're actually trying to identify um, cold tolerant denitrifiers. So these are going to be organisms that are going to be tolerant of cold conditions in these natural environments and um, try to work with those uh, uh, biologicals uh, in order to help maybe stimulate some of the, the nitrogen removal naturally uh, in our systems. Um, so that's, that's one of the projects. So it's integration of four different practices on that landscape. Um, the other one is what we're calling our drainage water recycling area. Um, that's on our traditional drainage plots. Um, so we've got 24 drainage plots uh, here at Lamberton that were put in in the early 70s. 
we also have a pond that was put in uh, back when the, the research center was first developed in the 60s. And so what we're doing is, is we're recycling drainage water from that pond uh, back onto our drainage plots uh, and trying to provide some supplemental irrigation uh, for the corn and the soybeans that are out there. Um, we've got uh, uh, about four years worth of data collected from that. And um, uh, in a couple of the years where we had some nice dry conditions, you know, for short periods during the summer, we actually saw some, some positive responses to that supplemental irrigation. And then, of course, we've had a couple of years that were quite wet uh, and we didn't see any response because we just didn't have to add water. So um, both of those projects will be continuing on in 2021. And, uh, you know, we're excited to, you know, just keep chugging along. So, Jeff Vetch, uh, the, the facilities at Wasika at the Research and Outreach Center, um, more or less the oldest uh, facilities we've got in Minnesota. Uh, they're actually getting, uh, we're, we're looking up into the not too distant future at a 50th anniversary of those things. When we look at the, the history of research that's gone on there, um, are we able to still use some of the data the, going back to the beginning of, of the establishment of those plots? Uh, how much of that stuff is still valid versus how much of it probably needs to be uh, done over again, uh, particularly considering the, uh, the climate uh, regime seem to have changed quite a bit uh, as far as how much uh, precip we're getting, uh, as well as the functionality of the drainage system as far as how, how long it's flowing um, you know, throughout the summer and uh, to a large extent uh, in the fall and into the winter that we didn't historically see a long time ago. There's research that was done that was really valid or still valid. And I think that's some of the stuff that was done in Lamberton um, in the early 90s, where they looked at different cropping systems, uh, corn, corn, corn after beans, beans after corn, uh, cover or a uh, uh, alfalfa and, and the uh, CRP and looked at the, uh, the amounts of nitrate concentration and losses that came off those different cropping systems, that data is still valid, hasn't changed. As are, I think the nitrogen source and timing work that was conducted from the mid eighties through the, probably the mid 2010s, 2015, up to about that point. Um, I think most of that data is still valid. The more recent data kind of agrees with the episodic nature of these fall versus spring applications. Some years fall is just much worse than other years. And that really hasn't changed that much. Um, I think a lot of the inhibitor research is probably still valid. The only thing I've noticed with our more recent inhibitor research is that it seems like the value of inhibitors in our drainage research is be they're becoming less effective than they were back in the work that we did in the late 80s and 90s or that Giles did in the late 80s and 90s. And that may be re related to our climatic conditions and maybe our soil conditions have changed compared to what they were then. I think it's probably partially related just to the fact that, that uh, just the added rainfall that we're getting is putting those systems under greater stress. I think the research that probably should be redone is the research where we were comparing fall applied manure to spring applied fertilizers or fall applied fertilizers. That was done I think starting in the late 70s and early and throughout most of the early 80s and into the early 90s. And it generally showed there was minimal difference between fall applied manure 
and spring applied like urea in a corn on corn system. And I'm not so sure that that shouldn't be redone under our current climatic conditions. So that that uh, that gets into something I wanted to talk to to Fabian about, and and uh, with us doing the nitrogen smart training and having a lot of discussion with farmers about adapting to conditions, um, particularly with it being as wet as it is, and of course we look at the loss processes of nitrogen being water driven, whether that's leaching into drain tile or or through denitrification in an undrained wet system, which is the stuff that you're actually comparing with your research right now. Are we headed into the territory where we may actually have different nitrogen recommendations based on what the drainage status is of a field? Or um, is it still kind of looking like uh, maybe the recommendations are the same, but the performance is going to be different? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And um, if if I may address that in a second, I also want to come back quickly before I go into that to something that Jeff mentioned in terms of um, uh, old research versus new research. And um, this study that we were doing at Lamberton that we just finished, uh, it, it was part of a larger regional study where we are trying to have similar treatments or similar measurements across the Midwest. Uh, and um, as I was coming to the end of this project, I, I, I had some ideas of what may be needed. And I also picked their brains because there is a lot of uh, expertise in that group uh, to say, what, what would be the important thing? What do we need to be looking at next? And one of the things that came up is, is something that is very simple, but we kind of all agree in the group that it's, it's something that needs to be revisited, which is a simple, nitrogen rate study, but being able to look at the loss that we get for different amounts of nitrogen. Uh, because of these weather conditions, one of the things that I have noticed is that the farmers can be doing everything right in terms of applying the right amount of nitrogen, applying it when the plant needs it, and um, these catastrophic rain events that we are seeing more and more often kind of erase everything that you've done correctly uh, from, from an agronomic standpoint. Uh, and so when we look at uh, water quality, some groups may feel like, well, we see these uh, nitrate concentrations increasing, so that's telling me that farmers are doing a poor job. When in reality, it may be that the farmers are doing everything they can correctly, but the, the, the frequency and the intensity of these really large rain events are driving most of that nitrogen loss. And so moving forward with this study at Lamberton, that's one of the things we'll be looking at. It's just a very simple nitrogen rate study, but that will allow us to compare and, and, and figure out, okay, under this amount of nitrogen, if you're at the optimum or below the optimum or above the optimum, what is the, the loss that we will get and what is the yield that we will get under these different scenarios. And obviously having kind of that continuous response, you can do regression and other kind of analysis to figure out, okay, if we reduce this, how much benefit do we get in water quality versus yield and things like that. 
Um, so that's kind of an aside. But coming back to the question you asked, Brad, um, we are noticing in this study where we have the drain and undrain conditions, we can compare apples to apples there because everything else except for the drainage is the same. We've, we noticed that uh, in undrained conditions, we do lose quite a bit of nitrogen and it's not through, um, we normally talk about, well, you have drainage, you lose nitrate and that's true. Uh, but we noticed that in a relative basis, we actually lose more nitrogen through denitrification than we do through leaching. Uh, in this study, we've started this back in 2014, doing this comparison of uh, drain and undrain. And we noticed that the crops, the, the yield at the economic optimum, it's about the same. It doesn't really change whether you have drain or undrain conditions, but the amount of nitrogen that you need for, let's say a pre-plant application is, is substantially different. I mean, on average it's about 20 pounds more nitrogen under undrained conditions than drain conditions. So that's telling me that um, when you have an undrained condition, what you're doing is you're flipping or switching um, the uh, environmental issue. You know, you're going from maybe losing some nitrate to losing quite a bit more uh, through the nitrification to the atmosphere. So it's kind of pollution switch that we are doing with, with that. And, and of course, like, like I mentioned, the yield at the economic optimum doesn't really change. So it's not that the crops are suffering under the disundrained conditions. Uh, Obviously, these are not situations where we have low laying areas of the field where we've seen plants dying or stuff like that. This is just a poorly drained soil that eventually dries and, and, and so the crops survive and, and they don't really lose yield potential. But the differences in, in nitrogen rate to get to that economic optimum are different. And so, um, you know, we obviously want to, to look at these things over a number of years and situations. This is just one side, even though it has been uh, going on for several years now um, before we make changes, right? But uh, eventually, I think that we may be able to, to get enough data to say, okay, this is if you have these kinds of conditions you may be looking at having to apply additional nitrogen if you have undrained conditions compared to uh, a, a field that has adequate drainage. Uh, the, uh, a quick additional thing on that is that in this particular study, we also have the, the timing application. And that has been an interesting thing as well, because when we do a pre-plant application, we see um, th that that's the biggest difference in terms of economic optimum end rate where you have undrained conditions, you need additional nitrogen. If you are doing a split application uh, in the drain conditions, it doesn't make much of a difference whether you're pre-plant applying only or doing a split application, but in the undrained conditions, that's where we see the biggest benefit to those split applications. Uh, that, that difference really narrows quite a bit because uh, I think what you're doing in those situations where you have undrained soils, uh, the potential for nitrogen loss early in the spring from a pre-plant application is much greater. And so by delaying that application to later in the season, then you get that additional benefit. Now, and that really kind of leads into Lindsay with what you're up to because the Red River Valley, uh, heavy, heavy soils, historically not a lot of drainage because if for no other reason, there's just not that much relief on the landscape. To, uh, to get the water to run away from. Uh, statewide, we've been focused a lot on nitrate issues and how much is running through drain tile. Um, you know, 
if if for no other reason because you can just easily measure how much nitrate is through drain tile i like to remind folks that if the nitrates in shallow groundwater it very probably is going to end up in surface water also but regardless um in the red river valley the issues have been a little different um and you talked about that some you talked about phosphorus and and so forth so uh, compared to what a lot of us in the uh the uh, mississippi river watershed deal with uh, really what, what's what's the primary focus when you're looking at drainage and nutrient management related uh, research in the Red River Valley? Yeah, like you mentioned, Brad, we really want to think about the phosphorus component of what's coming through the drain tiles as well. Um, and and nitrogen is still important. We still care about nitrogen, but we have this extra, um, extra I don't know what the right word is, but we have an extra focus on, on phosphorus because our water drains north and into a freshwater lake. So one of the differences between algal blooms in the Gulf of Mexico and algal blooms in Lake Winnipeg is that um, in freshwater systems, for whatever reason, um, the algae are limited by phosphorus more than nitrogen, and it's the opposite in the Gulf of Mexico. So that's why the rest of the state of Minnesota likes is thinking more about nitrogen and we're thinking more about phosphorus, it all has to do with is the water going into fresh water or is it entering salt water? Um, and so, yeah, since our water goes north and into a freshwater lake, um, and it's actually the same if you're in northeast Minnesota and your water is going to Lake Superior, you're also going to be wanting to be a little bit more concerned about phosphorus. Um, but yeah, that's that's really the, the main reason why we think about kind of that phosphorus piece in conjunction with, with nitrogen when we're talking about water quality. Um, and the other uh, thing to keep in mind is, and, and Fabian mentioned this with nitrogen, and you know there definitely are um, trade-offs with phosphorus too. Um, surface runoff can be really, really heavy in sediment and in kind of your total phosphorus load. So if you have a lot of surface runoff, you could be losing um, a lot of you know soil through erosion and um, in that water. And drainage can help um, you know alleviate that. You know, but then you are dealing with just just like nitrate, you're, you're dealing with kind of that dissolved fraction, you're increasing. And so it's changing pathways a little bit. And, um, and it is a, a relevant amount, you know, over, over the growing season. So, um, so we can't just say, okay, we've drained it and we're good. Um, we have to think about all those different pathways. And, and I think that's what we're really hoping um, to get at with some of this nitrogen, phosphorus and, and carbon cycling work. Um, actually on those drainage plots we just installed, um, I'm working with, with Fabian and Jeff Strock and Anna Cates on kind of looking at all three nutrients all together, which I think will be really an interesting analysis. That's that's very interesting. Now, Jeff Strzok, you've done a lot of work with uh, the the whole portfolio of technologies we kind of lump as conservation drainage, which is uh, beyond uh, trying to keep nitrate out of the water or phosphorus out of the water. It's kind of looking at once it's already there, can we get it back out again? One of the challenges working with that technology has not just simply been does it work it's how often does it work because of course a lot of these things have bypasses in them to prevent the water from backing up in the field when it gets too wet uh, so when it's running through the bypass it doesn't work and then of course there's the whole issue of of just simply uh 
periodic non-need for drainage. If it gets dry, we don't have water running through there and they're not functioning either. And then of course, there's the whole issue of uh, what is the overall cost of, uh, of installing these technologies. So kind of uh, beyond just simply looking at the performance of the technologies, Jeff, what are you kind of feeling these days related to their fit in our egg production systems moving forward? It's an awesome question, Brad. And, you know, one of the things that Lindsay mentioned this a little bit um, is that, you know, in the realm of thinking about, you know, any of these technologies, these strategies for trying to mitigate nutrients from our ag systems, you know, there are going to be trade-offs. And I, you know, people hear me talk about these things a lot in, in terms of saying, you know what, there are no silver bullets. So, you know, if we're thinking about a particular, you know, strategy for trying to deal with some water quality issue somewhere, for example, um, you know, there are going to be some advantages to those systems and there are going to be some disadvantages to those systems. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a site-specific kind of a thing that we need to think about, Brad, in terms of you know, not just thinking about where can we put these things, but then also how effective and then how cost-effective um, are they going to be for us to be actually be able to implement? Um, so when we start, you know, looking at some of the economics related to these things, there's there's a really great paper uh, published by some of my colleagues back in uh, uh, like mid 2013, 2015, somewhere in that area, and they were basically looking at um, several different practices, including nutrient management, uh, cover crops, bioreactors, wetlands, controlled drainage, even. Um, and looking at some of the economics, and, and there are a number of different ways to consider these things economically. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, what, what we like to kind of try to pencil out is, is what's, what's the advantage in terms of the cost per removal of, say, the pounds of nitrogen, uh, if we're interested in, in nitrate. So on a, on a kind of a scale of thinking about that, um, Cover crops tend to be the most expensive uh, practice, the most expensive strategy that we have based on, on some of that data, you know, mainly because you've got the seed costs, you've got the apl application costs. Um, you may have to terminate that if you've got say rye, for example, if it's not a easy, easily winter killed kind of a cover crop. Um, so there are some things with that. Now we know, we know cover crops can be very advantageous um, in when we can get them established. But again, there are some, some costs related to that. Um, when we think about, say, for example, wetlands, um, you know, we can think about, you know, the constructed wetlands that were designed to fit in a, the landscape where we have at the research center, or you could think about perhaps, you know, reconnecting, uh, you know, natural wetlands and, and reactivating them. Um, those tend to be the least expensive to operate, um, you know, uh, in terms of, of looking at uh, their, their annual uh, removal of nitrogen. So I guess I didn't give any numbers, but um, I'm, I'm looking at this paper uh, that these folks published and these numbers are probably still fairly current that cover crops about $25 per uh, kilogram of nitrogen per, per year, whereas a wetland is about 12 cents. So there's a huge amount uh, because wetlands, once they're established, you know, there's really not a massive amount of, of management that goes into those types of things. You know, you brought up a little bit about uh, thinking about bioreactors and some of the bypass flow that occurs through those, Brad. 
Um, and, you know, that certainly uh, can be an issue, especially during high oh, And saturated buffers, too. Well, right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, there, there are these situations where we know that these uh, particular strategies can be very, very efficient when they're operating. Saturated buffers, bioreactors, the wetlands are incredibly efficient, again, but it's a cost thing. So bioreactors, for example, um, still a pretty inexpensive strategy. It's about $1.30. Um, and then, you know, another practice that I've worked with uh, uh, for a number of years here in Minnesota, controlled drainage. Now, again, there are advantages and disadvantages. There are certain criteria uh, to be able to do installations. Controlled drainage can be very advantageous um, if you've got the right landscape. Of course, it has to be flat. And that's about almost $2 um, in terms of economics. Uh, but again, you know, there are some, some trade-offs with that. Um, you know, that, that controlled drainage practice is one that we were really hoping would be a win-win where we could get, um, you know, uh, economic benefit and for the farmer in terms of improved yields and then a water quality benefit. And one of the things that we found is that we have not seen that, uh, that yield benefit very frequently. We do see a yield benefit under certain conditions um, when we have when we have drier conditions, but under normal conditions, we really aren't seeing that that benefits. So um, they can be a little bit uh, a little bit tricky to kind of deal with. But there, there's there's quite a big range. And again, things that I didn't mention even here to think about is is that you know with a wetland, if we're constructing a wetland, we're taking land out of production, uh, and so those are considerations that have to be made. Uh, when when people are considering these things, the one thing that isn't on the list, and and I'm I'm an advocate for in terms of the potential of this practice is is working with our drainage ditches. Um, you know, in Minnesota, we've got about twenty seven thousand miles of drainage ditch out there, and if we could minimally invasively manage some of the water in those ditches and get the performance in these ditches. Uh, that we're getting in our experimental ditches, um, I'm guessing that that cost would be down around that wetland cost, you know, cents on the dollar, um, just because we don't have to construct those ditches. They're already there. We just have to manage them a little bit. So um, those are some of my thoughts related to economics, Brad. And if, if I may, um, one thing that, that Jeff was talking about that reminded me, one of the challenges that I am seeing with um, with the climate is that, you know, these uh, torrential rain events that I was mentioning earlier, and, and Jeff mentioned correctly that, yes, the, uh, the effectiveness of some of these mechanisms to kind of get nitrate out of the water is the residence time. And, you know, as I look at some of the drainage plots uh, that I have, typically you can count in one hand the number of rain events that kind of drive the majority of the nitrogen loss. And, and, and the challenge that I see is that, uh, you know, you have maybe three, five uh, huge rain events that drive 75% or, or so of the, the nitrogen loss in a growing season. And the challenge of dealing with that massive amount of water in a way that these, um, you know, engineering mechanisms of trying to get nitrate out of that water uh, be effective can be a challenge, I think, as we as we look at climate change and if we are going to continue to see kind of these large rain events happening more frequently. Well, one of the things I like to remind uh, uh, 
uh, folks of is when we're doing drainage related research, uh, while, while a lot of our ag research will do it for two years or maybe three years when it's drainage related, it, uh, it takes longer than that because you uh, can't predict how much water is going to run through the drainage system ahead of time. And so you don't necessarily know uh, what the, uh, um, that, that you're going to get representative results, uh, you know, until the project is over with. And so I think it's pretty clear that there's no shortage of questions for us to answer in the long run related to uh, drainage and, and water quality issues, you know, at least, you know, from my standpoint, uh, as an extension educator, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about is um, while we can't always have a specific uh, set of research data to address a question. You know, hopefully we've got enough science-based information that we can sort of interpret it towards uh, situations and at least make what we would consider educated guesses or science-related uh, decisions uh, versus uh, just uh, taking a, a shot from the hip, you know. So, um, you know, some of these things maybe we'll, uh, maybe I'll bring some of you guys on to one of our Gopher Coffee Shop podcasts here in the future and we can uh, have some more uh, wider ranging conversations about them. You know, Brad, um, there was something that kind of came up earlier when we were kind of talking and I was listening that I, I think is also kind of relevant and important to talk about a little bit here. And that is, is that, you know, we've been talking about some of these water quality things and management and whatnot from a, from a crop production standpoint. But, you know, recently, um, you know, as you pointed out, you know, there's a lot more drainage going in up in the valley. And, and Lindsay and I were, were talking about this just the other day. And, you know, it's, it's not just necessarily nutrients that we're concerned about. And, and, you know, really the reason that we have that drainage out there is, is for plant health, right? And so there are other things other than the nutrients that can impact yield. And the, and the thing that Lindsay and I were just trying to think about and, and work with, especially up in the Valley uh, on some of these high value crops, for example, like, uh, like beets or dry beans uh, is, is some of the plant diseases that are a you know, are really can be devastating um, under these wet conditions. I mean, it happens in Southern Minnesota with soybeans as well. Um, but, um, you know, this is another area where, you know, we're, we, we need to keep in mind that, uh, you know, drainage is part of the production system. Um, and, it, and it can really have not only a, a, a positive impact on yield, but it can also help, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, IPM and, and dealing with plant plant pathology, uh, you know, root rots and things of that nature. So, um, you know, the, the work that we do isn't just related to nutrients. It, it can be related to a lot of other things. Well, and, and one of the factors that we didn't really uh, spend any time talking about, um, you know, probably for no other reason, because it's not necessarily nutrient management related, is it gets into some of the, the landscape specific nature of contributions to, to the water and the surface water from the watershed and so forth. And I know like uh, Dan Kaiser's not on the, the uh, podcast with us right now, but Dan and I actually had a conversation this morning about um, some of our nitrogen advisory tools and and, and uh, the job they do in wetter areas and the performance using different, uh, um, not just simply using the one R, the rate, but maybe looking at uh, actually using those tools to uh, adjust in, in wet saturated conditions, uh, other application practices also. And so uh, there, there's a lot of uh, comprehensiveness uh, uh, to all of this that in the long run, it's, it's, uh, it's all connected and it's gonna, 
it's it's going to be challenging for all of us to to come up with uh, with some solutions for it. All right. Any last words from the group? I would just uh, mention only that uh, since brother was talking about the four R's or the the best management practices that we talked about uh, in the university. Um, which are basically the same thing. I think uh, as we move forward with um, with drainage and water quality, I think the, the four R's are very important. There is no substitute for them, but they're not enough. Uh, we need to be looking at uh, this as a much more holistic approach. Uh, obviously, the four R's is what we can do most easily uh, in terms from from a management perspective, but there are many other things, some of those that we talked about here today and others that we may have to be more creative to kind of implement in, in tandem with some of these uh, best management practices to really get uh, to improve water quality in the long run. I would add that, you know, when I think back to four, nearly 48 years ago when Giles Randall started planning this drainage research uh, in, infrastructure at, at Wasika. I don't think he would have dreamed that there would have been four or five people on a conference call talking about drainage research uh, in all of North America, let alone in one state. And I think that kind of puts in perspective how important this is, not only today, but moving forward. Great. All right. That about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>